You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So we're in this series, Seven Deadly Sins, and I think sometimes um, a little hesitant about even using that title and going in this direction because I think it almost puts the focus on the sins rather than on the Savior. Do you understand what I mean by that? And there are a lot of churches, um, well, I don't know. <laughs> I've heard a few messages myself, maybe I've even preached a couple, where the emphasis seems to be on the thou shalt not. <laughs> and it's more or less a berating. We're not trying to do that at all with this sermon series at all. We're not trying to berate you or kind of don't even think about it kind of for these seven, especially today. This is probably, in one sense, I don't know, I think greed will be, too, a very difficult one. But in one sense, this one is the one, when you think of sin, this is the one people always think of. Which one is? Lust or sex, right? Or whatever way you want to say that. So, and talk about touching what I would say is the third rail in our culture. It's touching on this. It's like, boom, and it can go in all different wrong ways. So a lot of Christian churches and a lot of Christians have been seen as judgmental, prudish, repressive um, when it comes to sexuality and sin in general. And on the surface of what we're going to read today, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount may come across that way. But we're not looking at just what Jesus said. We're also going to try to explore what he means and in the context of what he is talking about. And I think what we're going to find is that the Bible is very holistic, balanced in its understanding of love and sex. And it's when lust distorts that that we have problems. And it gets into the issue of how deadly that can be to your relationships and how deadly it can be when a whole society is consumed by these types of things. So we're going to read in Matthew chapter 5 just a very few verses on what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole Sermon on the Mount was to explain to his disciples how blessed it is to follow him, to trust in him, and to live the life of love. And in every aspect of life, whether it's in your relations to your neighbors, it's in relation to prayer and to giving and tithing or whatever, uh, how you can be the light of the world, how you can be the salt of the earth, how you can show love. And that includes even our sexual selves. And so let's read Matthew 5, 27 to 30. This is what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Wow. These are from the lips of Jesus. (laughs) He's not so meek and mild in these verses. And on the surface, you almost get the feeling that what Jesus is saying is, you don't even think about it, because if you do, you're going to hell. Okay? 
And so a lot of people in our culture and our society look at church and think, well, they just have such a negative view of sex and desire. But I think that's a misunderstanding. Now, I'm not whitewashing his words or downplaying his words in any form, but I think that actually the biblical understanding of love and sex is one of the most attractive things about Christianity, or can be. And you go like, what? Yes, it can be. So we're going to explore these three things from this text. The integrity of sex, the deceit of lust, and then the future of love. So first, the integrity of sex. And Jesus says it this way. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, this assumes, he's saying, he's building on a foundation of the, um, what you would say is the Old Testament or biblical view of sex and marriage and uh, love and how that is expressed. So Jesus builds on that Old Testament sexual ethic and that uh, you know, then begs the question, well, what was it? What was the Old Testament sexual ethic? And I think it comes down to one word we seldom use in English, but to one word called covenant, okay? And it so is one of those words that nobody else seems to use, covenant, that sex was a covenantal relationship. It was based on the covenant that God made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, that God had covenanted himself to his people and then called on them to live in such a covenant in their marriages, in their relationships. And you might go to me, well, why can't you come up with a better word these days? Can't you trans? No other word works in our English language. Um, every other word that we might use for a relationship often falls short of the word covenant. For example, a covenant is not a contract, okay? It's simply not just an agreement two people have together, a consensual agreement, and it's definitely not a deal, you know? It is not a deal for sure. A covenant is a whole category of thought, a whole world that God called his people, the children of Israel, into, and he's calling us into it. Because a covenant creates a relationship that is both loving and binding at the same time. It's more uh, than a legal contract could ever be because it adds in the whole idea of love and emotion and response. But it's also much more than a loving, uh, a loving and intimate relationship than simply an emotional um, feeling because it is legal. It's both together. It's not a deal. You don't make deals, okay? And sadly, most of our relationships today, most of our understanding of the world is a transactional consumer one, you know? We come to an agreement, for example, when I go to an auto dealership, which I hate doing, you go and you negotiate a deal, right? And you can haggle for hours. And have you ever noticed, I, I, maybe that's why things like Carvana and others are coming up, because people don't want to deal with the deals anymore, right? You don't want to deal with all that stuff. You just like to get it over with. And you always notice that the, um, the car dealer will always go, oh, I have to talk to so-and-so in the back room. They don't, you know, which is like, this is just baloney, 
You've done this enough. You know. You are just trying to go back and forth and back and forth and act like we could. And, but anyways, in the end, you haggle out a deal, and you both agree to that deal. I will give you so much, and you will give me this. And if I keep paying that loan, then I keep the car. And if I don't, it breaks, right? Then I meet the repo person. <laughs> and my credit score goes into the toilet. The covenant is not a deal. Or it's kind of like going to a restaurant, which is kind of like making a deal there, too. Um, I pay for a meal, and I'll come back again as long as I believe I'm getting a good price and good food and good service. And if not, I'm not going back to that restaurant again. In fact, I might yelp about it and explain how bad it is and give it a one star, right? That's the way it works. The restaurant might also not want my business if I'm going to be a jerk about it. And I think James Corden found that out recently as he was banned because of his conniption fit at a New York restaurant. So in a consumer relationship, you're always looking for a better deal. You're always negotiating. You're always trying to find better service, a better place, something more. A car dealership with less hassle and less overhead, a store with a better selection, a vendor with better response times, a better situation or I'm out of here, and I leave that relationship. And that's what's really, I think, behind that modern phrase that you might have heard. You do you. Have you ever heard that? You just do you. And what that's really saying is, do whatever it thinks that's going to work for you at the moment, because life is all about you, and you do that. And if you do you, and it doesn't work anymore, then you do something different for you. And you do you, and I'm going to be doing me. And as long as we like to do it together, we're OK. But if we don't, then we just break this off. I'm just finding a lot of younger generations, and maybe I'm just whining about this a little too much, but that friendships don't seem to last long because you do you and I do me doesn't fit together for much longer than a month or two or maybe a year and then we're gone and we just go in different directions. It's pretty sad. No wonder we are the loneliest, most depressed and anxious society ever. We are so disconnected and exhausted from trying to figure out what you do you means and how to make a better deal with, and keep negotiating time and time again. It's just exhausting. But you contrast now that with covenant. In a covenant, you make a promise. And instead of saying, I'm going to do me and you do you, it's actually a promise where I will continually adjust to you and your needs. I'm in this for good. My needs are less important than the needs of this relationship. You can trust I'm going to be here and invest myself in this. That's why I still like the uh, kind of traditional marriage vows of for better, for worse, for richer and poorer, in sickness and in health until death parts us. Because we're saying, I'm in this. I'm in this. 
Each person is there for the other. Now, honestly, and some of you know this, it takes two people to be in that kind of covenantal relationship. If one person is in it and the other says, I'm in it as a consumer, <laughs> I'm here for me, and you need to be here for me, it doesn't take long before that thing falls apart, right? And sadly, you thought that promise was really there, and you found out differently. And I'm so sad to know people who have gone through that tragedy of finding it was really about a consumer relationship from their partner and not a covenantal relationship. But when God set up the Old Testament sexual ethic, from the first chapters of Genesis on, it was a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman and not a consumer relationship. So long as I get something out of this, I'm here. And so this gives you a few things, by the way. And this is why I think the holistic understanding and the, uh, the, the beauty of a covenant comes in. First of all, it gives you a, a zone of security in which to be yourself. You know, in a covenant, you can finally get rid of the whole idea of trying to perform and all the facades that you put on. You're no longer dating anymore. Maybe this is what that phrase comes in when you get married and after a month or so, the honeymoon is over. Actually, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You, you're, you're real. You can trust and be uh, the vulnerable person you are with all your foibles and mistakes. Not to say I'm going to just stay this way no matter what, but I'm not going to play games anymore. I'm going to be myself, and I have the security of being myself with you and being accepted and loved by you despite my faults. So you can be honest and open. Stop spinning and marketing yourself to somebody. It's great. Let me tell you how many of us in all outside of maybe that kind of friendship, that is pretty rare, but in a marriage, have to continue to market and brand yourself to put on the facade. You know, that's what's happening these days. Secondly, or B, counterintuitive, but when you are committed to a person despite how you feel, your feelings can actually grow. Now, we kind of know this. And I think uh, the Hanahans are experiencing it as well right now in another covenantal relationship called parent and child, right? When you're a parent, you know you're not in it to make a transactional deal with the children. It never evens out. And you know that. I don't care how long you live. Many of you have adult children, and you know what you've given and invested in them not just the money, the dollars and cents, but the time and the effort and the prayers and the sweat and the, the sleepless. You never, ever get that evened out in life, okay? And yet, you still do it despite how you're feeling. You might be sick, the kid is sick. You're still going to take care of your child, even if you don't feel like it. And guess what happens over time? Your love grows for your children. It really does. It's, the agony can grow, too. <laughs> but your, your love grows. despite the, You're still doing it. And that's the same with a marriage. Your love can grow for someone even when you're not feeling it. It's amazing. And see, there's a freedom in a covenantal relationship. 
And this comes about maybe in a backwards way, counterintuitive way as well. Because if I'm all about, as long as I feel it, I'm in this, that means I'm really a puppet on the strings of my emotions. And then I'm always engaging in whether I'm in the relationship or not based on my taking the pulse of my emotion. Well, do I feel like it or not? You know, what was so funny, I just, I, I still look back and go like, hmm. I had a roommate who was a um, law student when I was at LSU. Um, and he was actually a pastor's kid. And he was so into the law, he said, you know what we should do? We should really make marriages five-year contracts. And at the end of five years, <laughs> um, it's up for negotiation again. Can you imagine what that would do? That's not freedom. That's scary. <laughs> That's scary. Now, I'm all for renewing marriage vows, but I'm not for like saying, OK, now let's negotiate again and see what you can bring in and I bring in. And it's like, oh my gosh, no. There's a freedom when you make a promise. You're no longer just controlled by your emotions and feelings. That changed, by the way, <laughs> with circumstances, the chemistry in my brain to uh, my physiology to my sleep. <laughs> my emotions change so easily. My body does not, you know, do you understand what I mean by that? And it's just so much. So a covenantal relationship. Now, you might be going like, what has this to do with sex at all or lust like we're talking about today? I think it has to do everything with it. Because the Bible says sex is not a consumer good. It's a covenantal good. The Bible says sex was not designed to be a consumer good, to be used, but instead to be given and shared. And in a covenant, sex becomes something sacred, something wonderful, and a full expression of the invisible reality of the love that engages the whole person open vulnerably to the other in an act of self-giving. And within the covenant of marriage, you are saying, I belong to you completely and exclusively to you, and I'm open to you physically as a token of how I am open to you in every other way. That's what covenant is. And that's kind of the integrity of sex according to the biblical ethic. But now, Jesus is dealing with something that goes beyond just, okay, we're married. Um, and that is to the deceit of lust. He moves beyond just that covenant and says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you might say, wait a minute, whoa, time out. This sounds, instead of you do you, this sounds like you deny you. <laughs> you deny you. Um, and the Christian faith has been accused of kind of repressing anything and any reality. Jesus is not saying, no, don't even think about it, don't even have a desire. He is saying instead, what's fascinating here is Jesus ha could use a lot of different words for what is translated here, lustful intent. And he decides to use the word epithumia. And what it really means is to covet, to lust after, to set apart 
uh, your heart upon something, and actually epi over thumia, desire. It's having a desire in overdrive. And Jesus says it's, his example is having a desire of yes. I have a question. Yes. You may not know the answer. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. No, that's moikeia, and he used that for adultery just before this. Okay, that one, thou shalt not commit adultery, is not the same as epithumia there. Moikeo, or whatever, is adultery, which is to have illicit sex outside of the bounds of marriage. Okay, but now he goes a little deeper to the intent behind it, because lust is a feeling or a motive rather than just an activity. Does that make sense? Okay. So epithumia, to have this desire after a woman, in this instance, Jesus says, over every other desire. It's the, what Augustine would say, having the wrong desires in the wrong order. You know, sometimes this word is used for idolatry. Sometimes it's used for greed. Sometimes it's used for anything that gets overcharged and take the place of everything else. The Bible, by the way, you know how the story of the Bible starts in Genesis 2? A naked man in the presence of a naked woman singing a song of poetry to her in the presence of God. That's Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. The Bible does not say that desire is wrong but rather when the over-desire, when it takes control of everything else. So often what happens is it's treating something good. Sin is often treating something good as something ultimate, more important than anything else. It's kind of like greed. It's not really about making money. You can make money and not be greedy. You can have a lot of money and not be greedy. You can have no money and be greedy. But greed is when you want to make money and to possess things for self alone without regard to anyone else. It's when you make money the center of your being or possessions the center of your being and the accumulation of them, assuming that if I haven't all of this, then I will be complete and full. And it, you can see it with some people that greed takes over in such a way that every relationship is assumed under it, and they can even destroy their friendships because someone is so greedy. They can destroy their marriage, their relationship with their children because it's all about themselves and their greed. That's how deadly it can be. And Jesus says in this verse, it's possible to be deceived into thinking lust is the same thing that you can make sex into the only thing that you think is going to complete you. Believing, I've got to have it my way, and it's all about me. And when I'm satisfied, it becomes such an over-desire, it's kind of like an addiction. And relationships, friendships, work, everything can be destroyed when it takes over like that. Outside of a covenantal relationship, people can be used and abused when lust takes over. Dehumanized, objectified, and we see that all over our society. It's sad. It is so sad. 
It's just so sad when people are treated as things to just gain pleasure. It's not just with lust that that happens, but it definitely has been happening that way. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in one of his books. He says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one union, sexual, from all the other kinds of union which are meant to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure. It means that you mustn't isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. So God's full intent is that it is a gift given to fully express to another in a covenantal relationship your love and commitment. So that's the present reality for us, but now Let's look at the future of love. Jesus goes on in this text in some of the harshest words ever that came from his mouth. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And what in the world did he just tell me to do? Does he really want me to dismember myself and gouge out my eye? And I can guarantee you, for myself at least, I could be blinded and still my brain would be thinking lustful thoughts. It can happen. I don't need to see it in order to think it. Jesus is actually using what's called hyperbole here, going to the extreme to show just how deadly this can be in your life. And probably the most important thing is who is saying it here? This is Jesus who is telling you this. This is Jesus who happens to be the one who is God's covenant to you, God's promise to you. The one who has covenanted himself to you in faithfulness. He is going to radically, drastically, shockingly give you everything to love, to be committed to you for the rest of your life and into eternity. You know, what's amazing about the language in the Bible when it comes to uh, marriage, the metaphor is used for the relationship as a husband and wife come together and become one. God uses this time and again in the prophets and in the covenant language for his relationship with his people, with Israel. And that when Israel goes away and worships idols, etc., it is considered, and the metaphor is used, of adultery. How could I have betrothed myself to you, God says. I have been faithful to you and all the things that I've done, and you have decided to go out and break the covenant. And time and again, the narrative of the Old Testament is when Israel breaks that covenant right, left, and center. They go after other gods. They follow other things. They do it their own way. Israel does Israel the way Israel wants to be. And yet what's amazing is how God still is faithful to his promises to the unfaithful people. 
The whole prophet Hosea's book is about how God graphically illustrates it by telling Hosea to go out and marry a woman named Gomer, never marry, uh, never marry a Gomer, who is unfaithful to him. And God's saying, it doesn't, that's exactly my relationship with you, my people. You're still my people. I'm going to hold on to you even when you won't hold on to me. God bears up with them. God puts up with them. God wants them. And Jesus says God is still faithful. And it's not just that, you know, the eyes are cast off or the hands are cut off, as this Bible passage says. Jesus, his entire body is cast into hell in order to keep the covenant with us and to be faithful to us. A radical deadly sin, lust, calls for a radical dying Savior's love. And now you might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, John. I mean, this sounds all good, but you know, I have lusted like Jesus is talking about here. I've wanted another person for my pleasure, and I have used others. I get it. And I'm glad you're here, or I'm glad you're listening online. Because the word I need to share with you is the word I need to hear myself. And that is, God is still faithful to you. God forgives you. God has not abandoned you. He doesn't drop us because our side of the deal didn't work. He's not dealing with you as a deal or transaction or some type of consumer relationship. God is not in this simply to see what he can get out of you. God is in this to give to you. To give to you. God is the covenant God who is for you. That is exactly why Jesus came into this world. Because uh, he knows the deadliness of our sins and our lusts and our desires and how out of order things can get. And he says to us still, you are my beloved. And honestly, I'm the last person to be in judgment over you on any of this stuff. I myself am under the same judgment with these words of Jesus. And thankfully, we're all under God's grace for what Jesus did. You know, instead of the lie of individualism that says, you do you, and instead of the religious reactivity of some churches and others to say, you have to deny yourself, you do not do you, the Bible's understanding is you are given you. That's what a covenant is. That God has given you, your body, your members, your sexuality, all of it. And that sex is a gift from God. And the possibility of fulfillment is not getting pleasures met on a schedule, but through receiving Christ. That's where I find out who I am. I can try to find myself and do whatever to discover myself, but I will always end up finding myself lost and confused in a wilderness of fickle and conflicting desires if I look inside. But when I am discovered and given myself from how Jesus Christ defines me, that's when I truly know who I am.
That's why St. Augustine said so long ago and yet so aptly for any generation, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That is, I only discover who I am when I receive my identity in Christ. And therefore, I live into the covenant promise of a faithful God who takes me as I am, who forgives me, who restores me, who renews me, and he gives me the possibility of living out in reflection of his covenant with me, faithfulness to others, and especially in marriage. Is this radically different from the individualism of the world? You bet it's radically different than what you're seeing in your society. But that's the way we embody the gospel. You know, our best marriages, they're going to only be partial and faltering in showing the faithfulness that God has had toward us. And yet, when we do show any aspect of that faithfulness, it is kind of like entering into Eden, entering into paradise, being Adam and Eve once again, and knowing the goodness of God over our lives. It's a little heaven on earth, and that's what God intends for us. And the future of love is the fact that just those little tastes and bits that you may have in your marriage are going to become the fullness of reality of how God is going to, the marriage of the Lamb of God, the feast marriage of the Lamb of God, as Revelation talks about. The end of the world is going to be a big wedding celebration like none other, and we are going to be united with God and with one another finally perfectly faithful and finally perfectly loving in a wonderful world. I love how Branson Parler, he wrote a book and I would recommend reading it. It's called Everybody, second word, Everybody's Story. And he says this, the scandalous claim that we don't belong to ourselves but are called to embody God's faithful covenant, love, profoundly shapes how Christians tell the story of the gospel and their bodies in singleness and marriage. So whether you are single or married, our relationships get to display the beauty, the wonder it is to live with Jesus. How wonderful God's gospel is. That, and how lust doesn't even come close to the love that God has for us and that we can share with each other. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Um, it's a tough subject. We've all experienced a lot of shame. And in this area, we know, Lord, we have. And forgive us, Lord, when we have used others for our own sake rather than giving and serving. Forgive us, Lord, how we have, um, our desires have gotten out of order. <laughs> We've had over-desires that take control and um, how, how destructive that can be in our relationships. Thank you, Lord, how wonderful it can be that we live under your covenant, your promises to us displayed in Jesus Christ. The fact that he has been faithful to us even when we've been unfaithful and that we uh, can fall at your feet, Lord God, and uh, confess all that we've done wrong and know that you renew us once again. And you still want us uh, for eternity, and we thank you for that, Lord God. Help us, Lord, to um, show this world 
your covenant love and that we may in some small way in our marriages, even in our friendships, in our singleness, in whatever state we are in, Lord, that we can show your faithfulness to others. This world is so fickle right now and so moved this way and that. We know so many people who are hurting because of the brokenness in relationships. And we pray, Lord, your healing come through us to them as well. All this we lift up to you today, Lord God, and we pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts to receive once again what you say is the new covenant of your blood and your body, um, this supper that we will receive in just a few moments. We ask, Lord, that um, as you are faithful to us, we may show a little of that in how we respond uh, with our tithes and offerings and acts of service this week. We lift up to you the um, henna hands and pray your blessing upon them. And Glenna, Lord, we're just so thrilled at her, her birth. We lift up to you the Husneys and um, looking forward to a, uh, a, a second child in just a short time. Uh, bless the last month or so of this pregnancy, Lord, and keep all in your care. We uh, lift up to you, Lord, um, those who need your healing touch today. And uh, we especially think of um, Otto and Mike Grisky. We pray for both of them that you would strengthen and provide um, relief from pain and more mobility and all of those things. We ask, Lord, that you would also uh, be with those who are uh, still hurting so much after uh, Hurricane Ian and now Nicole. Help us to know how to serve best and to serve better, Lord God. And uh, help us, Lord, to respond to, the, to your love and grace and mercy that we know in Jesus Christ. All these things we offer in his name this day. Amen.